Jesus says unto the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful. Strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Father, we again just want to ask as you allow us to see at the end of each one of these letters particularly that it is important, Lord, as your church and as your people that we would truly have an ear to hear. And Lord, we don't want our ears to become dull of hearing. We don't want dull hearts, Lord. We want to have ears that are expectant. And we believe that, Lord, by your spirit, you speak through the word of God to the people of God. So we're asking today, Lord, once again, that every intent behind why your spirit inspired and gave us these words in the scripture, that they would find their proper place to speak to me, to us, to a group of us here collectively worshiping you this day, and that, Lord, you would now, by your Spirit's ministry, speak through what you have spoken to us, Lord Jesus. We ask for your glory and namesake, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think one of the greatest mistakes that we can make as people at times is choosing to maintain a certain image instead of embracing reality. And what I mean by that is, of course, denying reality of what may be true about myself or denying reality of what may be true about what's going on in your life just to arrogantly uphold a public image. And we all know that reality. We've all been guilty of doing that. One of the most probably famous practices of all God's people is you can fight like cats and dogs at home that morning and all the way up until you put the car in park and then you walk up to the door of the church and the greeter says, how are you this morning? Great. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's been a great week. I'm going to strangle my wife on the way home, but... Murder three children, but God bless you. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. And, and you know, just how easily we can just, you know, we're fake, we're hypocritical, and, uh, and, and we just, we can do this in just the smallest of ways, and sadly, in much greater ways, we can be guilty of doing this too. I mean, that's a, a laughable little thing that we all know that we've done from time to time, but choosing to maintain a certain image instead of embracing reality about what's true of us spiritually in some of the greater things is really a very dangerous thing. And again, image refers to that general impression that a person presents or how we represent ourselves outwardly before others, 
Reality is defined as the state of things as they actually exist. That is the condition that is real or true as opposed to an idealistic idea that we're holding that's wrong or even, again, as I said, some false image that's being betrayed. And probably no way is this more foolish, think about it, than when it comes to God. I mean, it's one thing to deny reality and hold up a public image just in some you know, aspect of worldly existence, but there is nowhere it is probably more ludicrous for us to maintain a certain image instead of embracing the reality of what's true in our lives before a God who sees everything, before God who knows everything about us. The Bible tells us everything is laid naked and bare before the eyes of him to whom we all must give account. God knows the reality and has full awareness of what's true about all people. Every single one of our lives at all times, he knows what's going on and he knows what is real about every person's spiritual condition. He knows what's true regarding what's going on inside of our hearts at a given time. The Bible tells us that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. You know, on these Sunday mornings right now, we've been alternating. On one Sunday, we're going through the book of Revelation. The next Sunday, the gospel of Mark. And we've been seeing even in Mark's gospel, and we see it in all the gospels as well, how Jesus perceived people's thoughts. He knew what was going on inside of them. It's so evident. As God, he's fully aware of our condition. And God's not interested in the images we project outwardly. God's interested in the reality regarding our condition inwardly, what's really going on inside of your and my life. And a grave mistake we make is to project some outward spiritual image while denying the spiritual reality of maybe what's really going on inside of us regarding our inward condition. This was the great error of the Jewish religious leaders, remember, in Jesus' day that Jesus was not too easy upon. He found it very foolish, very offensive, and he used very strong language regarding it. You read Matthew 23, it's a chapter where Jesus gives a scathing rebuke to these very religious people who were portraying something outwardly when the reality inwardly was completely different. Jesus says this in Matthew 23, just a sampling of it. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish but inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. So outwardly, they clean themselves up. But inwardly, Jesus says, your heart's full of greed and your self-indulgent living. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you are outwardly appearing righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This was a great mistake that they made in that day. And this was the primary concern of the Lord Jesus that we see here this morning as he's communicating this next message, this next letter to the congregation, the church at Sardis. This message of Jesus was to a congregation of the Lord's people. It seems assembling, operating as a church and though they're assembling and operating as a church congregationally, they are denying the fact that they are a dying church. This is Jesus' letter, you might say, 
to the dying church. We've seen his letter to the compromised church, to the church that had a lot of productivity, but they lost passion and love for Jesus. This is his letter now to the dying church. And he strongly warns and instructs them to try and help them that their identification is they're maintaining an image outwardly of something about their spiritual life, but it was not true because they were lacking real spiritual experience on the inside. And Jesus saw that. And look, Jesus's letter here to this church is a reminder to us that churches and congregations like this will be in existence until the time that our Lord returns. There will be churches doing such things. There will be congregations, people assembling as dying churches, maintaining an image of something spiritually, but it's not true of really what's going on inside of that congregation of people assembling together. There will also be, sadly, people who will be operating like this until the Lord Jesus returns. 2 Timothy 3 says this to us, In the last days there will be those who have an appearance of godliness but deny the power of God. That is, they maintain an outward appearance of having a relationship with God, but at the same time that they present that image publicly, they are living in a way in their personal life, the reality is, where they are denying and resisting the power of God's Spirit to let God's Spirit help them to live a godly life. They just know how to put on the Christian show. But in their real life, their personal life, there is a complete rejection, in a sense, a disconnection and a rejecting of the Spirit's power working in their life, and they're just keeping an image by at the same time kind of denying, letting the power of God work inside of them, acting religious, but rejecting the Spirit's power and life. So Jesus, as the head of the church, look with me again back in our first verse of this, he now sends this letter to this church. Verse 1 says, to the angel, again, that word we talked about, angelos, to the messenger, of the church in Sardis write these things. Now, the next letter here to the local congregation assembling, Jesus writes it to the church in Sardis. And Sardis was a city with a unique background. They had been in existence for a long period of time. They had a proud history. And the city was situated on a very prosperous trade route. It also was situated at a higher elevation. And that higher elevation made it more easily defended to prevent from being conquered. The city of Sardis was a city that was known for wealth, for luxurious living, had a strong economic system. Some say it was one of the first places in the ancient culture that started printing its own money, and it offered in that city many options for immoral indulgence. Now, that being said, that city was also known historically, it was famous historically, for being repeatedly guilty of being overconfident in their outward portrayal of their city image and being self-assured but asleep at the wheel. And as the result of that action in the city, failure to maintain being alert to reality, the city on two different occasions historically had already fallen and was conquered in time past. Their overconfidence of their high elevation and their great situated status and their infrastructure and all they had built in their inception, that overconfidence and that failure to stay awake had led to the city falling and being conquered both in 549 BC, and then they resurrected again, 
And then the same thing happened again in overconfidence and neglecting to be paying attention. They again in 214 BC were conquered and the city fell a second time. So this city, Sardis, has a reputation for knowing how to keep a strong image outwardly while at the same time denying the reality that their city was dying and declining at times. And sadly, but yet interestingly enough, this Christian church in the city of Sardis was apparently struggling, Jesus says, with the exact same thing now, portraying an image outwardly, but declining to acknowledge what was really going on. So he says to this church in Sardis, write these things, verse 1, says, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, Jesus says, verse 1, that you have a name, an image, a reputation, that's the idea, that you are alive, but, Jesus' estimation, you are dead. Now, let me begin here by just addressing Jesus' assessment first of the church's real condition. And I think it's important to take his assessment first because the church at Sardis, like most of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 we're looking at, all located in the area of Asia Minor. And it is highly, highly likely they were planted as the work of the Lord overflowed from Paul the Apostle's powerful ministry that took place during a time for three years. He was pastoring and teaching the word of God in the church there at Ephesus he had established, we know, even the school of Tyrannus where he was teaching extra Bible studies, discipling people. And this powerful work was happening in the church of Ephesus as God's word was being taught, and a great revival broke out in the city of Ephesus. In fact, we're told there as well that through Paul's ministry in Asia, teaching the word of God, that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So it's highly likely that Sardis and all these other churches we're reading that Jesus addresses here in Revelation 2 and 3, that these churches really were birthed like regional churches as a result of the strong, healthy church and ministry of Paul there in the city of Ephesus. So Sardis appears to have had a history of being, we might say, a very vibrant, healthy church at one time in its inception. It was a work of the Spirit of the Lord. God's Word was being taught in years past. The Holy Spirit was moving powerfully. There were Spirit-filled believers who loved Jesus and were worshiping the Lord and impacting their community. And yet, it seems through neglect and disconnection, now this church at Sardis, who had that history, is now in decline. And it's now struggling, if you would, declining spiritually, and the majority of the congregation probably wouldn't even admit its healthy, unhealthy status. They're just trying to maintain and upkeep the image of a church that was once alive, but is now in decline spiritually and dying from Jesus' view. I mean, you can't get more direct than when Jesus, the head of the church, the chief shepherd and the overseer of all of our souls, makes this assessment of a congregation of people. You have a name and image. You keep a reputation. He says that you're alive there. Look at it in verse one. He says, but he says, the reality is this. You're as good as dead. You're on your way to the graveyard spiritually. He says in the next verse or so down, and there are things happening there. He says, verse two, which are ready to die. So Jesus makes a strong assessment. The great physician 
assesses this church's spiritual health, this congregation, and Jesus says, I hate to be so blatant with you and so honest, but your church is headed to the graveyard. The way things are there, the condition of how things are spiritually are so unhealthy, this is a serious diagnosis, and this is terminal. This is how bad things are there that, again, you should not deny reality. Now, notice in verse 1, if you would, with me, Jesus says to them, first of all, he says, I know your works. Now, that word works that he uses there, it's ergon in the Greek. It's where we get our English word today, energy. So understand, what Jesus was saying to them, as he's now giving them his assessment in their dying, declining condition, he says, look, I do see there's a lot of energy going on in that congregation. There's a lot of effort going on. There's a lot of activity being done in that congregation. In other words, they were still doing good works as a congregation of people that gathered together. There was still activity among this congregation in Sardis. They weren't a lazy group of people. There was plenty of religious routines going on. There was a lot of energy being invested. There was lots of activity, yet perhaps all the activities were efforts and energy of the flesh. It was just human energy to keep the social club going, to keep the religious duties happening. They were maintaining lots of religious activity and spiritual works, but Jesus, in a sense, is saying to them, listen, spiritual activity is not the same as spiritual vitality. Anybody can do spiritual activity. Anybody can do religious routines. Social groups do good works. And Jesus says, I, I see there's a lot of activity, a lot of ergon, a lot of energy and efforts going on that you're keeping the business operating and, and keeping the business open. But Jesus says, yet though you have a name and an image that you're alive spiritually and you uphold that reputation of being a spiritual place, he says, the reality is from my assessment, because I see everything, you are so unhealthy, you're on your way to dying you're disconnecting, you're disengaging to what is true spiritual life. And perhaps church, this church of Sardis maybe even had gradually declined just like a person's health gradually declines. Sometimes people's health gradually declines and they're almost not even cognizant or aware of the gradual decline in their health until it's too late and they don't realize it. And perhaps that's the case with this congregation. Maybe they were truly deceived of their declining condition, that they'd become lifeless. They were just going through the motions spiritually. They were going through the routines of spiritual life. You know, oftentimes when we pray before the worship meetings on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, one of the common things that seems to come to one of our minds to, to pray is, is, Lord, please help us. We don't want to just have a meeting. We want to meet with you. I've been doing this long enough that I can have a meeting I know how to have one of these church meetings. <laughs> I know how to push the buttons and pull the levers and say the right thing. We, we, most Christians, after a little while, you know how to do the meeting. And some of us and some of you, maybe even this morning, you wouldn't admit, but you come and you, you do the meeting. But are we meeting with God? Are we having a meeting with the Lord? His presence is among us. We should be here to have a meeting with him, not just hold a meeting. And perhaps they didn't even recognize to some degree that the church was becoming lifeless. They were going through routines of spiritual activity, but there was no real life 
of the Spirit's power actively at work in their midst. If I could define it this way, perhaps Jesus is telling them, look, there's no desire for God's presence among you anymore. There's no real passion for Jesus. There's, there's no hunger for the Word of God. There's no real you know, uh, interest in being empowered and changed. There's, there's no love flowing. There's no life happening. There, there's, there's no expectancy in the hearts of the people. There's, there's no enjoyment of prayer. And, and there's just kind of this lifeless, declining spiritual apathy that's being diminished and virtually gone. And sadly, when Jesus assesses and addresses a dying church or a declining church like this, what always tends to be the symptomatic effect of a dying church or a declining church are things like that real love for Jesus tends to fade. And then a congregation, as love for Jesus tends to fade, honoring Jesus and keeping his word begins to greatly decline as well. And that soon leads to the symptomatic effects of a dead or a dying church entering into compromise of core New Testament beliefs, saying we no longer believe this core New Testament doctrine anymore or becoming way more worldly, much more like the culture, and that congregation then begins to accommodate carnal behavior and immoral practices and living, and they become a very liberal environment that looks not much different at all from the standards of the world. And that's a common symptom of a dying church because the power and the life of God is not at work among them. Another sad symptom of a dying church, of course, also, is it ends up having many spiritually deceived attendees or congregants. And there's a difference between a convert and a congregant. Any good marketing person can do what it takes to recruit customers. There's a difference between a congregant and a convert, between an attendee and a child of God. And very sadly, one of the real dangers at times of a dying church is there can be people present thinking they have spiritual life because they keep coming and doing the thing that's the church thing. And you have people sadly sitting in pews or making attendance routinely thinking that their participation in this institutionalized religious activity or this church or whatever it may be, they're thinking that is giving them spiritual or eternal life and assurance, yet that is an utter deception of their true condition. And they're basically every week going through a religious routine with a false assurance of eternal destiny. And how sobering to hear the true shepherd say to this church, to this congregation, I see your religious works. I see them. I see all the ergon, the energy, the efforts. The, you're doing some, some, some nice things and some good works. And you have this image and reputation of being alive. In other words, they, they would claim things. They would, they would attach themselves to an image, to a reputation. right? Who has not met a person before? I've had conversations with people you have as well who you maybe even try and ask or engage about their spiritual life. You want to try and share Jesus with them and talk to them about the Lord. And, and this will be a phrase that you get back. Oh, oh I'm a Methodist. I'm a Protestant. I, I, I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Lutheran. What am I, a Calvary Chapelite? I don't know what I am. And it just sounds weird. But the reality is, is I don't care if you're a Baptist, Methodist, Calvary Chapelite. Are you a 
Christian. Do you know Jesus? Not claiming, again, a title. Try, again, you got an image. Oh, I'm, I'm attached to this thing. And you can say that and be completely devoid of real spiritual life within oneself. And look how Jesus now addresses this dying, declining church in his message. In verse 1, he addresses the church first by notice, as he does with all the churches, introducing himself in a specific way, purposely drawing attention to certain attributes of his nature from that vision that he, we saw back in chapter 1 of the glorified Christ. He says, these things, says he, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So with each one of these churches, Jesus draws an attribute or sometimes a few attributes from that glorified vision of him in the first chapter that John received. And he draws specific attributes of himself to introduce himself differently to each one of these churches, depending upon what condition they were in. And depending upon the condition of the church or depending upon a condition of a person, there are certain attributes of our Lord that we may need to really encounter all the more. And so Jesus here chooses these two attributes to represent himself. I'm he who has the seven spirits of God and he who has the seven stars. Now take notice there, the, the number seven duplicated twice there. Jesus both times refers to the number seven, and we know the number seven is a biblical number that represents completeness or fullness. Seven notes in a scale, seven days in a full week. So seven is a biblical number of fullness or completeness. Jesus is describing himself as the one who has full or complete authority over these things that he's referring to here. The first thing he says is, I am he who possesses the fullness, the completeness, he says, the seven spirits of God. Now, we already discussed this briefly in chapter one when it showed up, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time. But again, the Bible does not teach that there are seven different Holy Spirits. That's not what Jesus is teaching. That's completely unbiblical and nowhere in the word of God. The Bible teaches that God's spirit is one, that there's one spirit of God. What Jesus is doing here, of course, is clearly making an allusion to what we might better say of Jesus possessing the sevenfold, we might better use a term like that, the sevenfold fullness or completeness of the Spirit of God and his work in ministry. And this is what Jesus is implying here. He's drawing this, no doubt, from the Old Testament, as many parts in Revelation come from the Old Testament scriptures. In Isaiah chapter 11, there's a reference there to the fullness of the Spirit's ministry coming upon Christ the Messiah the completeness of his ministry. Isaiah 11 says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Again, seven descriptive terms describing the fullness of the spirit's ministry, the completeness of the Holy Spirit's ministry coming upon Jesus as he functioned in his public ministry as the Messiah. So Jesus here as God is describing how he possesses the fullness of the Spirit's ministry, the completeness of all the Spirit's ministry and that he himself, as the eternal God, is able to give to us the fullness of the Spirit's ministry in our lives through an encounter with him. Again, John 15, 26, Jesus said, when the helper comes, referring to the Holy Spirit, he says, whom I shall send to you. 
from the Father, the Spirit of truth proceeding from the Father, he will testify me. But again, notice Jesus says, who I shall send. I can send the Spirit. I will send the Spirit. John 20, after Jesus is resurrected in his glorified body, he said, even as the Father has sent me, I now send you. And it says, he breathed on his disciples and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathing the Spirit into the life of those first disciples. Again, in the gospel records, we read that our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who brings about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that he baptizes believers with the Spirit of the Lord, the fullness of the Spirit for power and for service. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church in great power, Peter, describing what happens, he attributes the event of the outpouring of the Spirit, saying that this is that which Jesus had poured out upon the church. So again, what is Jesus conveying as he introduces himself this way, possessing the fullness of the Spirit's ministry and power, as he introduces himself that way to the dying church? No doubt he's saying, first of all, to this dying church, here is what you need. You need to come to me and seek a fresh work of the Spirit of the Lord. And I can give you that. You need to come to me as the one who possesses all the fullness of, of the Spirit's ministry and power, the one who has the complete power and everything the Holy Spirit can give to you, and you need to come to me and experience a fresh renewal and revival of the Spirit's work in your midst. That's what that dying church needed. Jesus said the Spirit gives life, the flesh profits nothing. He also reveals himself secondarily in verse 1 as the one who has the seven stars. And from chapter 1, we know those seven stars. Jesus said referred to the seven angels or messengers, those who were bringing messages from heaven. And so here Jesus is telling them another thing that they needed as a dying church, as he introduces himself this way, is they needed a fresh word from the Lord. They needed heaven's word to come to them from the Lord Jesus who can send out his divine message. So again, his point, he's implying as the dying church they needed a renewed desire to want to hear from God. They'd lost that. They lost the desire to want to really hear from God, and they need that renewed to hear the voice of the Lord through the word of God. Again, we see the pattern throughout Scripture, Nehemiah. We see it in, in Haggai. You study church history, and you always find connected to a reviving, renewing work of God a renewed interest in the word of God because the spirit of God speaks through the word of God to the people of God. And whether it's in the Bible, we find indications of spiritual revivals or whether it's in church history. Psalm 119, you find repeatedly there, revive me according to your word. And so often that is what the church is needing, a fresh work of the spirit and a fresh renewal and desire to want to hear from God through the word of God. Now, to this dying congregation, Jesus goes on to say to them, verse 2, be watchful, strengthen the things which remain that are, he says, ready to die. For I've not found your works perfect before God. So he gives here, again, birth a little bit more assessment, and he also gives to them part of what we might call an antidote for their condition. His further assessment, he says there in verse 2, that there are things in your church, he says the second half of it, 
He says things there which are ready to die. In other words, again, the great physician saw the spiritual health of the church in severe decline and the condition spiritually as their health was declining. Jesus says to them, if you don't address your declining condition, if you don't assess and you don't address that, he says, it is going to lead to your ruin. It's going to lead to the demise and to the end of that congregation. It's going to bring the end. Churches, let's remember, folks, are also made up of what? People. They're made up of Christians. They're made up of human beings. And so, again, as we see Jesus saying this to a congregation, perhaps these are things right now that remain a part of our own spiritual lives, things that we need to be conscious of and consider, that if we were to be honest, potentially, maybe, there are things in our spiritual lives that are declining, things that are ebbing away, things that are dying, as Jesus describes there again. Maybe it's our prayer life is declining and kind of slowly dying off a little bit at a time compared to how it used to be. Maybe it's our time in God's word. Maybe that's dying off in lives. Maybe it's our worship life in God's house that's been declining and the vitality of wanting to be in God's house and worship with God's people. Maybe that's gradually declining and dying off. Maybe it's perhaps even just the Holy Spirit's work in our life is just diminishing or our passion to serve the Lord is maybe all but dead. And maybe at one time we had a real thriving passion to want to serve Jesus and do his work and, and maybe it's kind of those things are dying in our lives. And this can happen from time to time. As a result of that, Jesus says to this church here, I've not found your works, verse 2 he says, that is what you're doing, perfect. And that term perfect there is a term that means mature, fulfilled, or completed. So what Jesus is identifying is they'd become comfortable just leaving things in their spiritual life in an incomplete status. In other words, this declining, dying thing, as things were dying in their spiritual lives, they had settled into this apathetic, half-hearted attitude where they just lost interest in spiritual life. And in some ways, they were drifting, and Jesus is describing here a condition of spiritual apathy, that their heart condition spiritually was declining, and they were drifting and Jesus graciously offers them here in this verse already an antidote should they desire to recover from their unhealthy heart condition. What's the Lord's antidote? Well, antidote, the first thing he says in verse 2 there is he says, here's the antidote in this condition, be watchful. That is, pay attention, the language means. Other translations actually render that, Jesus saying, wake up. That's his, that's his word to the dying, declining church. Wake up. He says, you've fallen asleep spiritually. You're in a spiritual coma, Jesus would say. And your condition is declining. You've lost consciousness and awareness of the things of God. You're apathetic spiritually. You're dull-hearted. And this is sort of a spiritual wake-up call he's trying to present here to their drifting condition. And he also says, not only wake up, but he also says to them, verse 2, Please, he says, strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. In other words, what's Jesus saying? Get back to exercising yourself. That's how you regain strength. Get back to exercising yourself toward godliness, 
your spiritual life has atrophied, Jesus is saying. And he says, do whatever it requires to reverse the atrophy process in the church. Whatever it takes, Jesus says. Address the atrophying process. Do what it takes in your spiritual life. Through reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, strengthen your prayer life. Don't just give it up altogether. Strengthen it. Strengthen your commitment to the word of God. Strengthen your worship life. Apart from ongoing connection to Jesus, we have no strength, but Jesus can empower us by his spirit to revive and renew us so that we can then return to doing whatever it takes to get out of the atrophied condition, to go through spiritual rehab and to strengthen again our spiritual lives in a way they may need. So sometimes the word of the Lord we see to his churches in different conditions. This one, the word of the Lord to his church from Jesus was wake up. Look at the spiritual atrophy among you. And it's time to get serious about spiritual rehab, Jesus says. To do whatever it takes before you slowly die off altogether to strengthen that which is still there. Jesus' next instruction in verse 3 is he says also, Remember therefore how you have received and heard. So just like the Ephesian church that we saw first that had lost passion for Jesus and his word to that church that had lost their first love for him or left, excuse me, their first love for him, he also told them to remember and to repent and he gives the same antidote here. He tells this dying church there in verse three, look at it. He says to them, recall how you once received and how you once heard. He says, remember, recall. What's he saying? Remember how your heart, he's saying, was once so receptive. Remember that, Jesus says? Remember how your heart was once so receptive spiritually, and you were expectant when you came to the Lord. You showed up at church believing God was going to say something to you every single time. Remember, he says, what it was like. Recall, think about it. When you were excited to hear a word from the Lord and your, your, your heart was sensitive to the things of the Spirit, and when you heard something from the Lord, you responded to his voice. He says, remember that? Remember those days, Jesus is saying, what it used to be like? And why is he saying, remember that spiritual tenderness and receptivity? Because he's saying, that's spiritual health. And he's saying, if you can remember that, that was spiritual health, and remembering that makes us realize when something has gone horribly wrong. And he's saying, because it's not like that anymore, is it? And so he's asking them to just recall that for their own benefit. So what does the church do or what does a person do who realizes their spiritual life is declining and dying? Look, Jesus says, don't let the world, the flesh, and the devil just bury you. He says, fight for life. That's why he says there in verse 3, Remember how you received and heard and hold fast. In other words, he's saying cling to spiritual life. Cling to the anchor, which is Jesus. And also, what does he say? He says also it's going to require that you and I or any congregation would be willing to repent. That is to determine and decide to change, to admit one's error, to admit I am not going in the right way anymore spiritually and to stop making excuses for an unhealthy condition and to make changes. You know, it is amazing how despite what condition 
we settle into from time to time how Jesus is always awaiting with tons of grace, tons of grace. Bruised reed, he doesn't break. Smoking flax, he doesn't quench. He breathes fresh life into it, and he seeks to bring it back to life. And all he is waiting for is he says, if you're willing to repent and acknowledge your flame is dying and turn away from that pathway and turn back to the way that you know things ought to be, that if you're willing to return in repentance, Jesus says, I'll do the rest. But see, that's the decision part. The decision part is to acknowledge the need of change and to actually act upon that. However dead this church may have been, it had a choice to repent. And if that dead church opted to remain playing dead religious social club, and if that's the image they want to just keep, hey, we look spiritual, we're a church, we got a sign out front, and he says, if you want to remain playing dead religious social club and live in compromise and be just like the world, then Jesus says his word to this unrepentant condition, if they don't, look what he says, verse 3, therefore, if you will not wake up or watch or repent, the idea is, I will come upon you as a thief, and you won't know the hour that I come upon you. So he's warning that they're going to be caught, surprised, and off guard if they don't choose to repent with deep regret. Look, if a church is healthy and alive and it truly loves Jesus and worships Jesus, that church is going to be awaiting the Lord's return. We're going to be expecting and watching and wanting him to return to release us from this world and bring us home. But Jesus says to the dead church that's just existing as a religious institution where people are sleeping spiritually, he says, my coming for you is going to be like when a thief shows up at a house unexpectedly and on the end result of that, there's nothing but regret of loss. And how sad that would be saying, if you don't wake up from that dying condition, it, my return, he says, it's going to just be a horrible moment of regret. It's not going to be a moment of relief because there's going to be the awareness of, oh my goodness, we have been playing religious games and acting like a church and we don't even know Christ. We were just a community religious club. That's all we were. And Jesus says, I don't want that to happen. Look, as we've talked about before, these different churches Jesus addresses and the order he addresses them very interestingly also do represent different stages of church history consecutively. And no doubt this church, the church that's the dying church that was established but dying, no doubt it represents very clearly in some ways the time in church history connected to what we refer to as the time of the Protestant Reformation, where there was a time where many wonderful works of God's Spirit happened and the Word of God was taught, and many, as the result of the Protestant Reformation, many powerful mainline denominational churches were established at that time in church history, where wonderful works of God happened. Yet over time and with church history, many mainline denominational churches Sadly, now, this day, have an appearance still of being a church and being alive, but they are dying religious institutions. That in their unhealthy spiritual conditions are compromising core New Testament biblical doctrines 
saying, we don't believe that, we now believe this, that are becoming much like the world and their standards of morality and saying, listen, we love everything, not just we love everybody. There's a difference. Yes, we should love everybody. But the Bible says we should love what God loves and hate what God hates. And these dying religious institutions, sadly, these, many of these mainline denominational churches, and I'm not going to throw names around here, this is sadly the thing that starts to happen, is there becomes this decline and they are dying off and they desperately need a revival of the Spirit of the Lord. Now, it's at this point, Jesus turns, verse 4, and he speaks to the remnant of true believers that were still some there among the church in Sardis, which, of course, applied to any true believer even us this morning. He says there, you do have a few names, even in Sardis. It's almost as if he was surprised, but there were some among them that were true believers. And he describes them saying, who've not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So notice Jesus identifies here true believers. He identifies them here as those who don't compromise the truth in regards to moral living. He says there will be some there and they are there who have not defiled their garments. The picture there is that they were living in a clean way. That's the analogy that he's using there. So he's saying there will always be those who believe what God's word says about sin and will say, look, I don't care if everybody else around me wants to defile their garments. I'm not going there. I know what the Bible says, and I'm going to continue to live in accordance with the truth of God's word, and what God's word says is sin is sin. No matter what anybody's feelings think about that, it's sin. And they, they, they refuse to defile their garments. They won't make concessions in regards to sinful compromise. And Jesus says, and they shall walk with me, he says, verse 4, in white. And, of course, the idea of walking in white speaks of, of purity or holiness. And Jesus says, they walk with me by evidencing their adherence to faithful, godly living, upholding standards of holiness and honoring what the word of God says. And why and how does Jesus, in a sense, indicate in verse 4 that they're able to do this? Well, I think verse 4 tells us. He says, because they walk with me. Take notice of those three words. That's how. Because they walk with me. Through a genuine relationship with Jesus, the true Christian is able to experience two things. That is a holy, righteous, pure standing being robed in white with the righteousness and the cleansed blood of Christ washing away our sin through knowing Jesus genuinely. The Bible tells us that through our union with Christ, we receive the righteousness of God. He removes all of our sin and then he imputes into our spiritual account all his righteousness God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And as we have a union and true relationship with Jesus and we've received him as Savior through our faith in Christ, our judicial standing before God is not sinful, defiled, dirty garments of our sinful failures. It's robes of white righteousness. And we're acceptable through Christ. And even in a practical sense, as we live out a sanctified Christian life, our way of living, it enables us to live in a holy, pure way. And how do we live in a holy, pure way where we keep our lives, in a sense, worthy and pleasing to the Lord? By walking with Jesus. Because I can't do that if I don't walk with Jesus. 
I, I can't continue to live a godly, holy, pure life for probably more than three and a half seconds if I'm not walking with Jesus because it's his power working in me, his strength enabling me that helps me to do what the book of Ephesians tells us we should do as Christians after he tells us about this glorious standing and position we have in Christ, everything given to us by grace and through our faith to give us a righteous, holy standing, he then says, therefore, in light of that, that's your standing before God. Now you walk worthy of the calling you've received. That's how we make ourselves worthy, by walking worthy of that high calling as we walk with Jesus. In verse 5, he says, and he who overcomes, and again, we see this repeatedly in the letters, the overcomer we know from 1 John 5 is a reference to the true believer, the one who overcomes by faith in the saving work of Jesus as the only savior for sin. That's the overcomer. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So notice Jesus gives the believer, the true believer, the overcomer who's overcoming sin and Satan and the world by trust in Christ as Savior, as he does at the close of all these letters to the overcomer, to the true believer, he gives us some more eternal assurances. And two eternal assurances he gives us here, connected to these clean white garments of the forgiveness and the righteousness of Jesus we receive is he says, first of all, when we stand before the Lord as overcomers from this world, we're going to be clothed in white garments. Again, speaking of the righteousness, a clean, pure, holy life, despite all my sins and all the stupid, stained, selfish things that I incurred in the guilt of living like a lunatic before I met Jesus and yours as well. And even our shortcomings and failures and the mistakes we make even after we come to know Jesus that in a sense defile us and would bring stains upon our lives. Imagine when he presents you before his throne, he's going to present you there in holy, pure, white garments. Nobody's going to, nobody's going to see that stain anymore. That stain that bugs you of some sin that you committed in the past or or, or that stain of sin that somebody keeps to this day still wanting to condemn you and dog you about, when you get to heaven, they ain't even going to be able to find it. Check this garment, white everywhere. Woo! Right? We'll all become charismatic then for sure. Check that out. Can I get an amen? Right? I mean, I mean for real. I mean, you're going to have a white garment. And look, when Jesus says here with the second eternal assurance, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, please understand, again, these are promises to believers. Jesus is giving an assurance here. Follow the context. These are assurances to believers. This is not a warning to the unsaved, nor a warning about losing one's salvation. Jesus is not saying, you better be careful, because if you get one stain on your little white garment then I'm going to blot your name out of the book of life. I'm going to erase your name from heaven's record book. Don't make me do that. No, I don't want to cancel your reservation. Again, we know the book of life in Scripture is a biblical reference to a record God has in heaven of those who are truly saved, of those who are truly born again of the Spirit, who according to the Word of God's way that a person experiences salvation 
by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf, that we are born of the Spirit, we become children of God, we become married to Christ, we experience salvation, and look, through being married to Jesus, your name is on the reservation list for the wedding supper of the Lamb. By being a true biblical child of God, you're on the family tree, and God's got a, he's got a, a record book, a book of life, and our name is on it. And so what Jesus is conveying here, perhaps knowing that when you fail and when I err, or if a person backslides and we enter into sin, what happens? We get all condemned. And then Satan beats us up and makes us feel horrible and makes us feel rotten and makes us doubt. And Jesus says to the true believer, look, I knew that you were going to fail like that. I died on the cross for your sins, all your sins, before you ever got started sinning. I know your sin better than you do. And just because you failed and made a mistake, my blood covered that too. And don't think that now, just because you failed, somehow you're in trouble. He says, look, I'm your advocate in heaven. And he says, be at rest. Don't listen to the condemning voice of yourself or the devil. He says, I'm not ever going to blot your name out of the book of life. In fact, he says, he says, I tell you the truth. Verse 5, he says there, I'll be the one there confessing your name before my father and before all of his angels. I'll be the one saying, he belongs to me. She belongs to me. Because I know that they trusted in me and they knew me. And Jesus will be the one to present us. Jude tells us he's able to joyfully present us before his glorious presence, faultless. I can't even wrap my head around that <laughs> as a very faulty man. Faultless is the way he can present us. And again, Jesus conveying, he who has an ear, let him hear, as he says to all these, what the Spirit is saying. You know, perhaps this morning we should ask ourselves what the Spirit is saying to us as one of his churches. Have we become more focused on spiritual image than what's really going on in our spiritual lives? Be careful of that. Perhaps have we made the mistake where our spiritual life's starting to decline and atrophy, and we're just letting it atrophy, and we're doing nothing about it. Perhaps Jesus would say to us, if we humbly repent and come to him for a fresh work of his spirit and just walk with him, he can bring renewal, and he can bring revival.